Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. Today's programme is all about combining style with purpose. We catch up with a friend of the show who has an ambitious vision for making an enduring impact. Imagine if you can build an amazing business that as a byproduct of that does amazing things. Clean up oceans and help wildlife and help seed life. It's a great reason to want success for your brand. Then we head to Ethiopia to meet the founder of a sustainable fashion brand empowering local artisans. Getting people to see and relate to what it means when someone is not paid a living wage, that's something we want to keep pushing and we want to try and make human connections. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Emmanuel Erebo is a voice regular listeners of the programme will no doubt remember. We heard the origin story of his brand Loki Sneakers back in the summer. Emmanuel and his co-founders launched their handmade, vegan, meticulously designed shoes made in Portugal in 2021. And in just a couple of years, Loki has gained recognition in the fashion world for its focus on world-class quality, its commitments to genuinely sustainable practices and its charitable and social enterprise accomplishments. Emmanuel stopped by Midori House to unpack the broader vision behind the brand's eco-friendly credentials and to explain how you can merge commercial success with environmental consciousness. He spoke to about his hopes for building a lasting legacy. I began by asking Emmanuel whether Loki's ambitious approach was initially received with any scepticism. You turn up with all these bright new ideas and the industry look at you and they think you're mad. And to be fair... I think we are mad because, you know, the business has suffered as a result of it. There's been significant times where we haven't been able to do what the market needed because we haven't had enough inventory. I remember people ordering at Christmas and some people not getting it to February. And essentially, that was down to us not predicting the level of interest or not booking in the right time slots or the learning curve that is. And so I think when you look at Loki, it's about ambition. It's not about where it is today. And so we often talk about landing a rocket on the moon. We are nowhere near landing a rocket on the moon. We're on planet Earth assembling a team of very excited people and we have some plates strapped to, you know, this kind of thing that looks like it could be a rocket one day. And there is so much more that needs to go into it to get it to where it needs to be. And the best thing is, when you see how passionate people are about that mission, that gets you even more pumped. And that's a great reason to get up in the morning. And so that's kind of a really big part about Loki is the ambition rather than where it is today. What could it be? How do we get it there? And that's really interesting. And when we come on to what some of the big established players make of you guys, these disruptors in their space, but maybe actually before we talk about those big established players who really dominate the sneaker market, what about some other, I guess, slightly more niche players, I guess in terms of sustainable or vegan sneakers, people will know about Veja, say, or say, how do you look at those? Because you're kind of allies in a way in terms of trying to change consumer behaviours, but you are, I guess, in crude terms, rivals. What, what, what does that, what do those relationships look like? I'm interested. I suppose the funny thing about alternatives, and I'd probably turn to something like milk alternatives. If you look at the fridge, I mean, you've got soya milk, you've got almond milk, you've got oat milk. I'm an oat milk drinker, by the way. And there are different alternatives. And so what's happened is that as interest grows, the world will offer, hopefully, consumers more alternatives. And so we're an alternative. And they are a fantastic business, been built over a long time in, I think, the right way. 
stands for something. I would say Say, very similarly, is a good brand coming up that stands for something. I'd say that I'd like to think Loki stands for something a little bit different still. So we see quite a significant point of difference. And one of the stories I sometimes tell again is Loki gives 10% of the profits from every pair sold online to charity. And, you know, we were with some school friends at Christmas and one of them was being a little bit crude and was like, oh, how many sea turtles did you save? And to be honest with you, it's one of the five charities we support. So I didn't know the answer and my brother picked up the phone and he made a phone call and he put it on a loudspeaker. And somebody on the phone said, yeah, sure, great. Look, you guys have been amazing. Thank you so much for the help so far this year. I think we're about eight months in. You've saved 114,633 sea turtles. And the entire room went quiet. And then a few people started patting us on the back going, hey, mate, what are you? And we're like, well, brilliant. Imagine if you can build an amazing business that as a byproduct of that does amazing things. And so that's what Loki's about. If you're able to clean up oceans and help wildlife and help seed life and do all these amazing things, and you're not WWF, so it's not about plastering that, but doing that is super important. It's a great reason to want success for your brand. And it's really interesting because increasingly we talk to more and more, certainly entrepreneurs, but even leaders of really huge businesses, big international corporates, and they talk about this kind of shift in values really explicitly saying, well, look, we need to try and bring market values almost onto natural assets so that we put a more direct price on things. Now, some critics say, well, you shouldn't put a price on how many turtles you save or how much plastic you remove from the ocean because it's a bio-asset, belongs to everybody, and bringing market speak, that's wrong, and we don't want to be capitalistic about it. But actually, it is important, isn't it, to try and put some numbers on it. That example you described is demonstrative of that. To a point, you have to be a bit more objective and clinical and say, look, there's real numbers on this, because otherwise, how do you judge progress it's important right not to be cold about it or sort of clinically market driven but you need to put numbers on the good works that you're doing don't you i mean it's definitely important to track the impact and make sure that whatever money you're investing whatever time you're investing is going in the right direction i also think that a lot of it's about intention and so when you look at the intention behind loki the intention will grow as the business grows and it'll have more capacity and resource and more awareness to it and so sometimes it's a question of how much you're doing directly but sometimes you're just raising a ton of awareness and that awareness can lead to other positives there's a halo effect and so imagine if tomorrow or after this podcast another 20 brands decide to get involved and do something which has that kind of it's the seed that sparks everything right so i wouldn't necessarily say that you should quantify how good you are as a business or as a brand or whatever by the direct impact because I think there is a halo to what you're able to do. Loki's getting out there, it's getting tons of press and I hope people do recognise that what we're trying to do is bring together style and purpose and I'm not putting one ahead of the other in any way. I'm trying to marry those together. That's the idea. And hopefully that's something that other people in other industries will sit there and go, hey, why don't I bring together X and purpose? This podcast might be the thing that does that. And so... On our journey, we've sprouted off these other things, which someone might go off and do bigger and better things than us and have a greater impact. We're talking about it. It's the conversation. You brought me here for the conversation. I'm grateful for that. Oh, we're more grateful than you. <laughs> let's not make it too competitive. Um, let's talk about growth. How do you guys calibrate growth? The ambition we can hear in what you say, Emmanuel, but do you look at, is it sectors? Is it range? I think I've seen you talk before about is there an apparel story, maybe? How do you sort of calibrate your expectations, your ambitions? Is it sometimes a question of checking those and just putting one foot in front of the other? What does that look like? Absolutely. Okay, so really, really tough question. We launched Loki in footwear because we were comfortable in footwear. The impact is something that we're really driven by. And if I can talk about success in another brand and not talk about their numbers, 
it's Patagonia. I think Patagonia is a remarkable business. And I'm not saying that based on their revenues. That wouldn't really be the way we're coming at this. I say that because when I'm walking down the street and I see somebody wearing a Patagonia t-shirt, I instantly feel like I know who that person is. I feel like I know what they represent. I feel like I understand the way they see the world. And I could be completely wrong, but that's how powerful that brand is. And so when we look at what Loki could be, similarly, we imagine a brand where when you wear it, we know what that person stands for and what their values are. And I think what's really exciting about the consumer of today is, and I think that this is something that maybe 10 or 20 years ago was a bigger thing, but you either had to be a Patagonia wearer, and in your mind you probably got a Birkenstock person on Santa Monica you know, beach sort of you know, kicking a, a hacky sack, or you're this high-powered city person who's got like a suit and a blazer in, and you're like, greed is good and capitalism or whatever. And I think what Loki's trying to do is say that you can care about both. You can care about being successful and career ambition and driven and want things in life. And it's okay to have those things. And you can still care about the world that's in front of you and how it operates. And so, you know, we're finding a unique space where we can sort of merge those two things together. And if you're one day walking down the street and you see somebody wearing a Loki hat or a T-shirt or other forms of apparel all the way down to the accessories and kicks, you go, oh, I know how that person sees the world. And that, for us, would be like the ultimate success. So are those things on the way? <laughs> oh, gosh, no. Well, I'm not going to put you on the spot. <laughs> one, one day, perhaps. But it could happen. But that's interesting, because I think you have to marry up these very short-term, day-to-day, the demands Absolutely. of the business with the longer-term time horizon. And sometimes I think people, certainly myself, looking from the outside, I, I would find it quite difficult to switch between yeah, the rigours of that Excel sheet Completely. today yeah. and those ambitions for 10 years. As the business grows, how do you ensure that because presumably you have to delegate responsibility Absolutely. For, for maintaining those values. How do you ensure that people who arrive at the business still have the same grasp of those very fundamental values? Is that difficult? It's funny because we've got some incredible members joining our team, and that's sort of directly in this country and internationally and in different spaces. And what you see is this passion that I've never seen before. In our previous business, we had a lot of amazing people working with us, loads of experience. But one thing I would say I noticed, and it sounds heartless, so please pinch of salt this, is it was a job. It was a job. You turned up and you did your job. And I think what we've seen in Loki, as well as people leaving, you know, sizable businesses or taking pay cuts or giving more time than they probably should to this project, there's a passion part to it. You know, there's people in our warehouse that are more passionate about this brand than people who worked in our offices in those positions in our previous company. And so you're looking at what this is doing. And like I said to you, a lot of it is about the ambition. If you look at it today, oh, it's a cool little sneaker business. But that's not what this is about. This is about can this cool little sneaker business go on and do what's promised. And to be honest with you, it's very hard to measure the daily success and the macro success, it's super hard. That's like a finger in the air. There's no opportunities come to us every day. Some of them are outrageous. And we're thinking, do we take that opportunity? And something in you will say, maybe not now. Let's go down the road a little bit. Let's keep that warm. Okay, this is great. How about we do this? Let's do this. Right now, this is our focus. And to not fall into the normal traps, the trap that we were in before of just purely driving growth because growth is good and it means selling more and it means more publicity. No, that's not what this is about. This is about... Can you build that legacy, that legacy brand? That's what the focus is. I love that. Talking legacy, what, two years into the journey? It's, <laughs> it's, no, it's amazing. It's, that's, that's real ambition. What about inspiration day to day? Because presumably with all the rigours, the demands that Loki makes and your team and you're in LA for a lot of the time, travelling around, how do you ensure you continue to get 
inspired for the next great idea. It's funny when I met you outside the front here. You had your your headphones on. Do you get lost in music? What? How <laughs> do you? How do you ensure you keep fresh and keep finding new ideas? So personally, I used to read a copious amount. I would go through books like there was no tomorrow. Since starting Loki, I've stopped reading and I'm just listening to music. And I've got my headphones on the majority of the time because I find it therapeutic and it soothes me. Because in front of us are some really big things, and a lot of the time. It's the sort of thing that might make you fall out of your chair, and that's both opportunities and risks. And so, to kind of remember that there's other things in the world and just be sort of at peace, it's a really big thing for me. I'd say, as a group, what we're really good at doing, I think, and again, I hope this doesn't sound too arrogant, is we are great at networking with other people, building amazing businesses in sectors all over the place, and that's in Los Angeles, that's in Asia, that's in Europe. And so we're all about cross pollination. Is it being in environments where people are doing amazing things, and you're like, oh my god, these guys are in this industry, and look what they're doing. How sick is that? And so we describe ourselves as not being of the footwear industry, although to be fair, making millions of shoes since like you know 2012, we think of ourselves as outsiders because the day that we are actually inside, I think we're going to lose what we're here to do. We're here to look at what everyone else is doing and bring that into other areas, and that's where I think you get innovation. That was Emmanuel Erebo, the co-founder of Loki. You can find out more about the brand at LokiWear.com, and head to Monocle.com or your favourite podcast platform to hear more about the start of the Loki journey in our Eureka program. You're listening to the Entrepreneurs. Jerusalem Hadera Kidane is the co-founder of Sabain, a premium leather goods company based in Addis Ababa. The brand was founded in 2011 by Jerusalem and her sister, and now employs dozens of people. It's made up of a workshop where the team produces beautiful upcycled bags from waste leather, and a concept retail space showcasing products from more than 50 independent artisans. Now a successful player in the industry, they're expanding their reach to export Sabine products internationally to countries including the US, Denmark, Norway, Germany, and Switzerland. I caught up with Jerusalem to hear more about Sabine's deep roots and heritage in Ethiopia, and how crafting jewelry and leather has been a family tradition for generations. Jerusalem began by explaining the meaning of the brand name. So yeah, Sabine is it's an Amharic word, which is an Ethiopian language. So when we started the brand, we wanted it to be to represent something out of Ethiopia. So we wanted to use a local language, and Sabine literally meant it was the feeling that we wanted people to have when they interacted with our product. So Sabine is literally it attracted me. So this is a feeling that we say, oh, people come into our shop. This is a word that we want them to feel. And I think anyone who's who's seen the products or got to, to to hold the products will completely understand it because they're they're so beautiful. There's a wonderful tactility to it, and there's obvious craft. I mean, that's what's really striking about the pieces that you make. There's so much craft, and you can feel the history almost. Tell us a bit about how the history, the craft, the traditions of making that you and your family indeed have been doing for a long time are literally kind of woven into the very fabric of the products. It is definitely a brand that we're very emotionally attached to, right? Sometimes when I have discussions with possible investors or people in business, the conversations are really difficult because there is an emotional attachment on on our side. 
So I, I come from a family of, of dwellers. So me and my sister grew up in a shop in Addis watching metal pieces, gold pieces being transformed into beautiful jewelry, beautiful traditional crosses. And I never understood the impact it had for a very long time. I just thought, yeah, this is just somewhere I went to get some ice cream if I went to the shop. But just through everything we did with the brand, everything that came through the process of developing Sabing as, as a brand and as a concept as well, with the community element, with the crafts element, I can see how it goes back to this upbringing of the dweller shop and it's this generations and when I have a conversation with with my mom who's also from this generations of dwellers she sees it it's clear for her but for me it took time to realize that oh this has been the impact of what I'd grown up with I think that's where the craftsmanship comes in and that's why the attachment to artisanal workmanship also comes in for Sabin. Well, yeah, and it, it's evident. I think that emotional attachment that you describe so eloquently is really almost tangible in the products. And so is that passion for longevity and making things to last. And I know that's another cornerstone, isn't it, Irisalem, about the products that you make. It's this idea that we're too wedded to consumerism, fast fashion, making and throwing away. And actually, you want things that will endure. That's really another sort of fundamental building block, isn't it, of what you've sought to to build there? Absolutely. We want things to last. It is a personal core value of mine. I don't want to keep buying the same thing over and over again. And this is also ingrained into how we design things. We use scrap material. We use upcycled material. So we also don't want to use new things to make some more stuff that you end up throwing away or ends up in landfill. Just through like the process of design, when we've decided to, oh, we want to use scrap, we want to use materials that are sustainable. We also want the product we made to be to be sustainable to last. And that's also one of the reasons why we went into, we're going into a pre-order model now because we're not, we don't want to make more things that will end up being thrown away. This is the central ethos of how we want to keep doing things. Well, yeah, and there's some other markers, I think, that really make the business stand out. One is, is this idea of helping your colleagues to not just be part of the business, but to help them flourish, to help them develop. I know you've spoken in the past about how you got this learning, I think, from from your from your mother, who you just mentioned. But talk to me a little bit about that and how you make that investment in human capital and why that's important. Absolutely. I think at the core of me, I believe it, it takes a village. There's nothing I could do on my own. And you need a very committed, talented, driven team to get things done. And this needs to be rewarded, acknowledged, and also empowered, right? I don't see it as me or my sister doing the artisans a favor, doing our team a favor. It's really reciprocal relationship. So I've seen it in the past growing up, how my mom would always focus on training and getting people to be empowered to do better. But this, I think, along the way has also, I've seen how it had built a community around her and how this community is there for her, right? It's the value of the relationship not being one-sided. 
it's seeing the value in someone else and being able to acknowledge it and building a relationship based on that, right? So that's where the empowerment comes in. The idea is when we're empowering people, they're also empowering us back. Yeah, I mean, it's so important to have those those values. And when they become entrenched, it can be incredibly powerful. I, I wanted to ask you, Jerusalem, a little bit about the expansion of the of the brand and the business, because there is an, an extraordinary heritage, as you mentioned, both in, in jewellery and leatherwork in Ethiopia. And then you've got your personal, you know, your family tradition in those same disciplines. How did you go about getting that message out there because presumably you had to collaborate with other brands and I know you did that in far-flung places in across Europe in the United States and obviously now the the Sabine brand itself is growing but how did you go about ensuring that that story and those values and those principles could travel because travel they did what what kind of strategies did you employ to get the message out there and and grow that story at the beginning The major value that was created was within the community of the concept shop that we created, where people just came and experienced things and they had a natural inclination to talk about it. The concept shop that we had included a small coffee shop for just conversations, the shop where our products were displayed. And we also had a collection of other artisanal products and then people could at the back also see how the products are being made. So the workshop was at the concept shop as well. So this experience kind of led to, I think, a natural conversation and a natural expansion of what Sabing is, what we did. It did take some time because it was, we wanted it to be organic. So we didn't want to push too much. We wanted to tell our story, but we didn't want it to be very fast fashion ad type of storytelling, right? We wanted to have an organic storytelling. So we did tell our stories online through the events we did, through people we met, but we are pretty conservative of pushing, right? We want we want a natural slow process of how it grew. Well, yeah. And actually, I think people tend to engage with brands and grow close to brands who are maybe a little gentler in their storytelling. And in much the same way, I think people tend to take on board messages around other issues. If we think about things like climate change, sustainability, being more responsible and purposeful in the way that we buy products and indeed the way that manufacturers make products. If the message is a little gentler, I think people tend to engage with it a bit a bit more. But <laughs> can, can you tell me a bit about how much of a challenge has it been to really integrate those values into the products that, that you make? Has it been difficult or actually is it is it easier than some people think it's going to be? It is quite a challenge, but you, I think you need kind of a short memory of the negatives to keep going. We always emphasize on, oh, what has, what have we done to overcome the challenges? We were an artisanal manufacturer for a brand in the US and it was just a natural process of seeing all the scrap we produced through this process and just looking at it and being like, oh, this is not how we want to do it. We want to take another route. It wasn't as intentional and as long-term as it has become over time. And now we understand more the intentionality and the planning around it. But it was more, I hate having this trash. And I can imagine how landfills look like. And I want to do something about it. Our major mission when we started was we want to do something about artisans, making sure they're fairly paid. This is one of the biggest employers within the continent, within Africa. But adding 
the holistic circularity solution. So those things coming together took us one step in the journey of, oh, like this is going to be a more holistic circular endeavor. It wasn't easy. What's what is very difficult, actually, because now there's there's a lot of conversations about sustainability in the environmental sense, and there is a shift of thought. What we find difficult also for people to relate with is the issue of livable wages, fair wages for people that make these products. This has been one of the major challenges, getting people to see and relate to what it means when someone is not paid a living wage, what it means when they're treated unfairly. It's difficult because it's easier for people to relate with what they see. And this is invisible. It's not the environment. So that's been one of the difficulties. And that's something we want to keep pushing. And we want to try and make human connections. How can one human who is in a workshop, in a factory, have the same connection with someone that's, say, somewhere in in London? What connects those two people? And how could they empathize with one another, right? To get people to, to see what livable wages mean and what slavery type conditions mean in these manufacturing places. It's so important to have real innovators who are demonstrative about these things. I think Jerusalem, because I think too many people talk about it and not, not enough people are intentional and then actually do it. And I think that's what where so much of the power of, of what you've been doing comes from. To that point then, where does this journey go next? I mean, obviously, we've talked a little bit about your plans for expansion. It's obviously an exciting time and there are plans afoot to continue to build globally and take this message and these wonderful products around the world. What does that look like? Give us a bit of a picture of where you see the road taking you next. Yeah, we're pretty excited about the future. We know it's it's going to be a lot of hard work, but we've seen how it's worked in the past. So we feel very positive about it. So we have three major pillars of how we want to go forward. One is in terms of material exploration with natural materials and also the concept taking the concept of upcycling a bit further. So that's something we want to focus on with working with different artisans, how we can bring together craftsmanship, artisanship and and material usage. The second one is we're looking deeper into like the intersectionality of cultural regeneration and circularity. So this is very important and this is something we want to keep exploring. So we want to keep developing traditional craft techniques and see how this can contribute better towards a sustainable future. The third thing is we want to partner with different entrepreneurs, businesses, brands, different parts of the world to be able to tell human stories not just about our artisans in Ethiopia, but social issues that prevail all over the world. So how do we tell these stories of connection through partnership? And how do we partner with artists, designers, and people within culture that work in culture to to be able to tell stories of intersectionality, basically. So we're not just going to focus on the artisans in Ethiopia, but also focus on the core values of the partners where we're going to make to be able to go into different different markets. That was Jerusalem Hadera Kidane, the co-founder of Sabane. You can discover more about the brand. Just head to sabane.com.
That's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do look out for Eureka. That program's available every Friday. The Entrepreneurs was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard. You can follow us and catch up with the archive of programs at monocle.com or via your preferred podcast platform. If you want to get in touch with the team, write to Laura. She's on LRK at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.